Moses has just like wrapped up his whole message, this message part of the law. In essence, it's almost like he's given an altar call. Like, you know, when you have the message and it's a flashpoint of action, connection, that's where he's at. So he's just going to seal it right here. And then when we go forward from here, verse by verse, particularly on Tuesday night for the next few weeks, he just moves right into what the future holds based upon good decisions or bad decisions. So with that context, we read this in verse 16 of chapter 26. This day... The Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes and judgments. Therefore, you shall be careful to observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. Today you've proclaimed the Lord to be your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and that you will obey his voice. Also, today the Lord has proclaimed to you to be his special people, just as he promised you. They should keep his commandments and that he will set you high above all the nations which he has made in praise, in name, and in honor and that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God just as he has spoken. This is the vows. This is almost like a wedding vow, that moment of the wedding ceremony where the vows happen. Because if you caught it, a couple phrases that stand out, three times the references to the day and that's where it's like an altar call. This day, today, also today. So in these few short verses, three times when Moses is concluding this whole sermon on the law of God, moral, civil, and religious law of God, he says, this day, today, also today. And he says, you proclaimed the Lord to be your God. And then he says in verse 18, the Lord has proclaimed you to be his special people. It's like a wedding ceremony, truly, where you just say, having, you know, said I will, given, you know, made the vows, face each other, given, exchange the rings. I now, by the power invested in me, declare that you are now husband and wife. You've said he's your God, and God has said you're his special people. It's the vow. It's the covenant. This is the Mosaic covenant, and it was already in place at Mount Sinai, but now with this next generation actually going into the promised land where the Jews will live as a nation in a covenant with God for hundreds of years before the northern kingdom's taken away for disobedience, the southern kingdom's taken away for disobedience, and then brought back based upon God's faithfulness to his people. That will happen around 550 B.C. So it's almost a thousand, it's almost a millennium that the people, and of course, some of the people never were taken away. And then you get the intertestament period. Basically, well, you have those books like Nehemiah is like 500 to 400 BC and Malachi being the last book of the Old Testament. Then the intertestament period of 400 years and then Jesus comes and then the Jews were, of course, scattered for rejecting Christ when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. So it's about a 1500 year run that these people were in a covenant with God until the night, Jesus literally said, take this cup, the cup of my blood given for you. Take this bread, my body broken for you. And we do have communion tonight, so it's very appropriate. Until Jesus did that on that night to bring in the new and everlasting covenant, this was the covenant for the people. And this was the generation that crossed over and took the land and then passed on the inheritance to every subsequent generation until the time Christ came. 
And they saw all the kingdoms that fight them from the north, like Syria and Moab and these people. And then the Assyrians came. And then the Babylonians came. And then Alexander the Great and the Seleucid Empire. Then the Romans until the time of Christ. That's the context here historically what we're reading. These are not just mere words. This is a nation set apart by God, an ethnic people group of DNA descent from Abraham, their father, through Isaac, the son of promise, through Jacob, the grandson, through his 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, and now having been birthed in the womb of Egypt, if you will, brought forth from that to be a nation. Now they're going to go in about 1.5 million people with all the promises in front of them. And before they do, this law has been reaffirmed and now the vows are made. You say he's your God and he says you're his special people. That's the historical context of what's happening here. And of course, they were not faithful to that, but God was faithful to them. In the New Testament, the apostle Peter, who was there that night when Jesus took the bread and the cup and ushered in the new covenant, and we're told in Hebrews it's the everlasting covenant. Peter would be led by the Holy Spirit to write some things later on in 1 Peter that should definitely get our attention as the church of Jesus Christ on this night. For in 1 Peter chapter 2, when speaking of the nation of Israel rejecting Jesus, he said that Jesus was the chief cornerstone, which is precious in the eyes of the Father, and those who believe in him will not be put to shame. But... For those who don't believe, who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected, the religious leaders of Israel, has become the chief cornerstone. And it's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So then in 1 Peter chapter 2, with that, quoting these passages of the Old Testament, he said, concerning the nation of Israel, they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were appointed. Verse 9 of 1 Peter 2 says this, though. Listen, church, carefully. But you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The Holy Spirit through Peter takes what we just read here, where God says that they are a special people, the nation of Israel, and now, using the same language, he refers to the church of Jesus Christ Believers in Christ of all generations from Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, to this night here in Orange County, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, obviously not a literal nation, but using that symbolism and understanding that we have, especially the Old Testament understanding of Israel, his own special people. The same phrase is used. The Holy Spirit uses the exact same phrase to refer to the church of Jesus Christ here tonight and worldwide that he used on this day when they said their vows, the next generation, and would prepare to cross over into the promised land. So when we get our historical background, we then get our context of who we are as the church and what does this mean for us. So we want to look at this text and consider, since the New Testament, the Holy Spirit tells us that we're his special people, we want to look at the principles that God has for us in this passage tonight as the church. The first thing we see that he said to them, which affirms true for the church, is that God's standards are our standards. 
The people of Covenant of Israel were very different than their neighbors. We understand that. We know that. And how they were called to live their life was based upon the law and then the reaffirmation of the law in Deuteronomy. And whenever there was revival for Israel in the Old Testament, particularly with, say, like Hezekiah and Josiah, but there were other revivals at different times. Jehoshaphat was a great king, too. It always happened when the people returned to God and his word, his law, as their standard by which they saw themselves in the mirror and the world around them. God's standard, standards are our standards. And you look at the very beginning of this passage, verse 16. The Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes and judgments. You be careful to observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. God's standards are our standards to be observed. They're the reference point. Now, later on in the text, he talks about the action from observation, but just the standard. See, because before people walk away from the Lord, before people rebel from the Lord or live in sin against the Lord, they generally harden their hearts and they lower the bar and they lower the standard. And maybe because they were in sin and they liked the sin, rather than repenting of sin, they just change the standard so sin no longer is sin and they redefine it so they can live with their conscience, which is being seared by that very act of unrepentance, which is what Romans chapter 1 warns us of in the human experience. Since Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we can be sure that who he is in character, how he's revealed himself, all-knowing, all-powerful, totally holy, totally just, totally loving, a God of love and wrath, a God of grace, mercy, and justice and retribution, that he has never changed. He's outside of time, space, and matter. So from the very first covenant made with Adam and then through Noah and Abraham and Moses and to the church, these covenants, he's never changed. He's given more revelation for further understanding the human experience, but he's never changed. He's the father of light with whom there's no shadows of turning. And reminded that tonight. So his standards never change. His standards, his laws, his ordinances, they never change. Now, one might say we're not under the dietary law of the Old Testament. We've talked about this before. Those things maybe represented something to teach us lessons about people and clean things and unclean things. And really, they teach us lessons about distinction, which we'll close with on this passage. But God never changed his standards. We understand that tonight. Like God wasn't one way when he revealed himself to Adam and Eve in the garden as their creator. And then another way when Jesus is at the the Last Supper instituting communion, he's not saying anything different or contrary in morality and character than what was ever said in the garden. He's the same. Societies change. People change. Societies move toward righteousness. They're blessed because blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Righteousness exalts a nation and sin is reproached to any people. But when societies move from righteousness or God's standards, then they just put themselves under the universal laws of God's morality and standards where they're not in a place where they're blessed, but they're in a place where they're chastened. 
Therefore, we know from the human experience, the more a society makes laws favorable with God's word, the better it is for the people. How blessed it is for the people when a righteous king reigns. We know it's a tragedy for the people when the wicked reign are in power. And there's Proverbs that declare that. We know, and we need to know, that God never changes. And his standards never change. And he told them in this covenant that his standard is their standard to observe the statutes and the judgments and to do so carefully with all your heart and with all your soul. So as we see societal changes that go against God's word and God's statutes and God's standards, we need to be very careful, no matter how tempting it is, to want to dilute our thinking or our moral compass to avoid conflict or to fit in, we can't. And this is what the Bible has in mind when it says in Romans, let God be true and every man a liar. Because God is always true and God is light. But men are not always true. They're liars and they move toward darkness to justify sin and live with their sin. And so things might change in societal structures of time, space, and matter, but no, they're never going to change in eternity. It's never going to change. And speaking of the law, which is contextual here historically, we know that God's law is perfect. And we know that if there's a law that could save us righteously, it is his law that we just restudied in Deuteronomy. The law is not bad. Just because we can't obey it to be saved doesn't mean it's not good or relevant. The law has always been and will always be God's righteous standards for moral, uh, correct moral standing, correct civil standing, and correct religious standing fulfilled in Jesus Christ. If this was a moral law that was in the best interest for a human being then, it is now. And if this is the civil law in the best interest of a society then, it is now. Do you think God has a... has? that man comes up with the better laws and guidances for principles of our society than the ones God gave to Israel? Of course not. And all the religious law was pointed to Jesus on the cross and rising from the grave. It truly is a biblical worldview of right and wrong. God's standards are our standards. Not just worship generation, which of course they are, but the church of Jesus Christ. And when people confess Jesus Christ... And they align themselves by the compass of north, of right, and wrong from God's word, they're going to be blessed. And the more people in a church do that, the more the church is going to be blessed. The more people in a community society do that, the more the people are going to be blessed. The more they do it in their family, the more they're going to be blessed. God is light, and Him is no darkness at all, and there's no shadow of turning with the Father of lights. So God is telling this next generation, which is very interesting, praying for the seniors tonight, and as we just see generations in transition right now. Because the world my kids are growing up in and my grandkids is not the world I grew up in. And it's not one I really am excited to stick around for either. Or as Hezekiah said when he found out what the future held for the next generation, but he would die and not see it. And he's like, well, bad for them, good for me. That's literally what he said. That is literally what he said. Well, at least it won't happen in my day. It doesn't mean God won't bring the next generation through their day. He will. Until that trumpet sounds, so bring him. But I would say to the next generation, those we pray for tonight, the kids in the IT room as they grow up, the kids in the children's ministry as they grow up, you who raised those kids, us grandparents who influence those grandkids, 
our standard will always be the same. God's word from Genesis to Revelation. A similar situation happened with Paul the Apostle when he felt he was going to be dying and never see the Ephesians again. And he called the Ephesian elders to Miletus there in Acts chapter 20. And as he gathered them together, he said this to them, that I have not ceased to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And after I'm gone, I know that you'll have wolves rise up from within and people come from without. And therefore, I've warned you. Now, that takes place in every church generation. In every church generation, there's wolves that rise up from within and there's wolves that come from the outside. But Paul, in essence, was he had poured into those people for years and he's turning the future of the, the church in that region, modern Turkey, over to them. And he says, I've not ceased to declare to you the whole counsel of God, the apostles' doctrine. And now it's up for Polycarp and those who, Timothy and then Polycarp and those who come after them and the rest is church history. Each generation of church history has a generation that moves on and passes on the oracles of God and the standards of God to lead the next generation for their marriages, for their children, and their children's children. As I've been going through bins of stuff from my distant relatives, not only have I found photos, but of course I found Bibles. And now in my office, I have Bibles that go back to World War I. They were the Bibles of my ancestors that came before me. And they read their Bibles during all their time. And then they set to eternity, and those Bibles ended up in boxes. I have the box with the Bible. My dad's mom was Esther. Norma's husband was a minister his whole life. And I have his Bible. I have all my Bibles. They're finally out of the bin because we tore down the shed. I've been saying this when the shed went down. You either end up in our trash, Shoreline's trash, or Goodwill, or in my office, which is very small. All my Bibles are there now, and the Bibles of previous generations. And the prayer book Pancho Juarez gave me years ago that he found a bookstore from 1910. I forgot about that. That's on the shelf, too. And the consistency is, in my forefathers' generations, Jesus was the same yesterday, today, and forever. My dad talked to me and Jennifer recently about how, about the third grade of school, they took out singing songs of Jesus and the hymns. Jennifer was so blown away. She's like, you're telling me like when your dad went to school like in 1937, one year he goes back to school and they're no longer singing songs about Jesus. Well, wait for it. They won't even be singing songs about America anymore. But that's what happened when my dad was in elementary school with my wife as my witness. My dad's all, oh, one year we went to school and couldn't sing the songs about Jesus anymore. Madison, Wisconsin, go figure. 1937, look what we got now. But those Bibles that I inherited from my forefathers are as true to, were as true to them as this is to you and will be for you, Elijah, in your entire journey. Bella, that word's never going to change. And by the way, when you buy your Bibles, do you ever ask yourself this? Because I did. I bought a new Bible yesterday. You know what you should ask yourself when you buy yourself a new Bible? Really good question to ask yourself. 
So listen closely. Will this be my last Bible? It's a really good question to ask yourself. Will this be my last Bible? There's one standard. It's God and his word. It reflects his character. That was their standard. That's our standard. His standard is our standard. His north is our north. It will never change. And no matter what societies do, taking songs, hymns about Jesus in 1937 out of the public school system or redefining what gender is in 2021 and forcing it upon us in the public school system or whatever else they're going to force on us in Elijah and Bella's and Stephanie's generation, the church will always be the church and God's word will always be true. And thus we can say, as they would have said 3,500 years ago, Moses' last breath, let God be true and every man a liar. You cross this Jordan and this is your standard forever, for every generation. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And God's word, that Bible you'll pick out at the bookstore, every word is spilt with the blood of Jesus Christ over every letter, jot, and tittle. And that is a standard that will never change. It didn't change for my forefathers, your forefathers, and it won't change for our great-great-great-grandchildren when we're long gone. There's one standard for them, special people then, and a special people now. It is God's word that Paul said, I've not ceased to declare to you all of it. And that's why we're going to just keep plowing the word. You're 17 <laughs> with WG. Because when I come back from Florida in early July, we're just going to pick up in Joshua on Tuesday night. And we're going to move to Matthew on Saturday night. We're just going to keep going verse by verse. Until, just like Pastor Chuck and Steve Mays and those that came before us, and hopefully those that will come after us. One standard It's good to be reminded. One standard. God's standard is our standard, not the changing boundaries of skewed men and women living in delusion and under demonic deception. The second thing we see is God's standards is our actions. For he said here in verse 17, Today you've proclaimed the Lord to be your God, that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments, and his judgments, that you will obey his voice. The key words that we see jump out at us are walk, keep, and obey. The walk is the idea of your whole lifestyle. So for them, it was going to be their whole lifestyle. When they got in the land and they defeated the Canaanites and they received their inheritance by their tribe, they got their piece of land, they got their new house. Like they were set up, like God set them up. So now we have a community, and now we have local government, and the, the elders of the city, and we have standards of right and wrong, and, and for the nation, but also for our own personal lives. And we have a standard. There's a standard that comes from Jerusalem, should come from the kings when we have kings, until then it comes from the judges and the prophets. And so we have to choose in our own life, in our own home, with our own children, as we plow our field and trim our vineyards and all these things. Are we going to walk in his ways? Because God warned them that the behavior and the lifestyles of the Canaanites who they did not expel would become a snare to them. And we're all surrounded by snares. You go away to college, you're surrounded by snares. You, you, can't, you, can't, you can't go anywhere where you're not surrounded by snares. It's not the snares that's our undoing, it's what we choose to do with God's word and our standards. Each of us is held accountable on the day of Christ Jesus 
for what our standard was and did how we did with that. That's why the standard is so important because if your compass isn't north in the right direction, you won't end up at the right destination in the right headspace and life space that you're supposed to be in. So everyone that changes their compass to a different direction lowers their standards and lowers the bar for society and the people around them not to offend or just to live in a compromised piece of kumbaya that's destructive to the soul and to a nation. They'll find out when they leave this dimension to the eternal dimension that they were greatly deceived and that wasn't the standard of the kingdom. And because the standard of the kingdom is our standard, then when we're living in this world with snares all around us, it's very important. Deuteronomy 6 said this, when you'll rise up, you'll talk about the Lord. When you work in the field, you'll talk about the Lord. When you come home, the Lord's word will be over your front door. Like, it's all, you will walk. You will walk. Like, everywhere our, our consciousness is on the Lord. Now, I know most of you are, live this way. I know that. But God's standard is our action. We walk, we keep, and obey. There's action. And we do what's right. And we know it's right because God's word is our standard. His standard is our standard. So we do what's right morally and socially. And we don't always do what's right morally and socially because we're sinners. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we sin, we have Jesus Christ, who's with the Father, our advocate. And if, we're, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we choose wisely. We choose wisely what decisions we're going to make privately and publicly. And we make the right decisions. We have our standard, and no matter how much pressure comes against us from the devil and people and society saying, that's not really north, we know what north is. We know what north is. North is God's word and God's standard, and that's our standard. So we're not... Well, think about this. When Joshua went into the promised land, and we actually get some of that preparation here in the back part of Deuteronomy, God says, look, put this word in you, think about it all day long, and don't depart to the left or to the right. Just obey the word, and you're going to be fine. And so we choose the right things. And when we make mistakes, we make shortcomings, we're growing in faith, we're growing in obedience, we're growing in humility, and we're developing brokenness through failures. And we don't lower the bar and change our standard because we don't live up to a standard of perfection. We keep the standard proper and we repent and humble ourselves so we move more toward what we're meant to be and less than what we were. That's the Christian walk. That's the walk of faith. We're saved by faith. We walk by faith. That's how we're supposed to go forward. Though a righteous man falls, he'll arise seven times and just keep getting up. When Peter asked Jesus, how many times must I forgive my neighbor? Seven times? And Jesus said, seven times, 70. Now, whether that's hyperbole or not, that's 490 times. And if you try to count your failures, don't do that. Because as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins from us. And the whole lesson of the scapegoat was that one goat died, and then the sins were confessed on the other goat, and that goat was sent away, the living goat, never be seen from again and as that goat was sent in the wilderness with the sins of the people confessed over it you would never see that scapegoat and you know you, you just can't go out there and go looking for that scapegoat when that scapegoat went off into the Judean wilderness no Levite ever walked up to the high priest and said you know can I go check in on the scapegoat no Benjamin you cannot because the scapegoat represents our sins being cast away so far as the east is from the west let it go, 
let it be. So from failure of action, we need to have sensitivity of correction and humility and brokenness so we can go forward and again be more what we're meant to be and less of what we were. And that's the gift of life. If you can live 40 years or 50 years or 60 or 70 or 80 or 90, you would want to keep growing and not be an old foolish king that can't be reproved, as it says in Proverbs, but to be a tender-hearted queen and king who could be corrected right up until the end game. Driving with my wife yesterday, I had a good friend pass away just a, a, a few weeks ago suddenly, and I'm doing the memorial in a few weeks. You know, when you're 60, everyone starts passing away. The older people know what I mean. And you just think about stuff. And I was thinking about my dad being 91 and Billy Graham being, you know, 99. And, and you know, you go into assisted living and memory care. or Memory care is different than assisted living, in case you don't know. But um, and you think, like, why do some people die in the prime of their youth randomly, like Jeremy Camp's first wife, Melissa Henning? And why does someone like Billy Graham live 100 years? And, but you would just keep growing. You would want to keep growing. Like, that's the thing. So when we think about our, the standard is our action, let's think about Billy Graham at 99. Well, he did his Los Angeles crusade online a few years before that. It was the most people he ever reached with any crusade. We know that. That's a fact. Billy Graham reached more people with that crusade he did online for Los Angeles when he was 97 than any other crusade he ever did in person. Now I think about Franklin Graham, his son, and Anne Graham Lotz, and his children, and his children's children, like Will Graham, the grandson or whatever, like doing all this stuff that makes Franklin Graham look like, it just keeps going on and on. So maybe while you reach 99 and you're still not perfect, but you're still growing, you'd want to be growing. I would have to think that's the purpose, right? Does Billy, is Billy Graham sinless at 99? No. Is he growing at 99? Yes. Is he thinking about how to serve the Lord faithfully? Yes. What's his standard for serving the Lord faithfully at 99? God's word. God's word. So if I lose my mind when I'm 80 or 70 or 65, my standard hopefully is always going to be God's word. I trust that God will do that and protect me from that. I'm trying to move toward that. You should be trying to move toward that too. You, ever, you can find interviews of Billy Graham on YouTube when he's like in his late 90s and listen to him talk. He's still Billy. The Bible says, the Bible says he never moved his standard in everything he did with his life. He had friends, he had enemies, he had very serious enemies. He had people that hated him and lived to do one thing, try and destroy his name and his reputation and who he was and his credibility of his ministry if you're not familiar with that, because we all think Billy Graham was very popular. Billy Graham was hated by a lot of people, as was Pastor Chuck, as is Greg Laurie, and certainly as is Franklin Graham. But what's the standard? And then what's the action? And when there's failure, what's the reaction to failure? The reaction has to be brokenness, humility, repentance, and faith. Not lowering the standard and moving your compass a little to the left from the direction that it's set at. Because God's not going to change and his word's not going to change. You find when people want to walk according to their flesh in ministry, they dumb down their doctrine. That's what they do. And one of the things in America is you can always find a church whose moral compass, be it correct or greatly incorrect, you can find that church for you wherever you want your compass to go. 
If you're looking to go to a church that's based upon the truth from Genesis Revelation, you can find it, like here. But if you're looking for a church that cuts and pastes certain things, says that God really didn't mean this, but it really meant that, you can find that church too. But the warning is, walk in his ways, keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments, and obey his voice. Again, this was a national level for them, but it's a personal level for each person. So you can imagine you're there and you're the next generation. You're thinking, like, man, we're going to war with those people, that big wall over there at Jericho. And you're thinking, it's been a long sermon. It's like 20, 20, 23 chapters, man. This is Moses, man. He can go on. Someone's like, you should, that's nothing. Joshua will tell you about him back at Mount Sinai, what it was like back in the day when he got the law the first time. And as you heard that law, you would have to decide, especially as a young person, now this is what's going to guide us as a nation when we get in there, but what's going to guide me? Am I going to walk and obey? So I remind us tonight, body of Christ, walk and obey. I remind me, walk and obey his judgments. And they are judgments. There is right, there is wrong. We know that. We understand that. His judgments are the standard of truth to guide a soul from here to eternity. And he wants us to love him with all of our heart and soul. And to see that we fulfill these statutes with obedience with all of our heart and soul. So not only are the standards by which are our standards, but the standards that dictate our actions and reactions morally, socially, and we choose wisely. Now, Paul wrote the Corinthian church and he said this in the end of 1 Corinthians. And they are in a very a culture very opposed to what Christ stood for and the church stands for. And Paul said this after declaring the confidence of the resurrection and the earthly body, the celestial body, corruptible, put on incorruptible. He said, verse 58 of chapter 15, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abiding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That's how we have to approach our lives, whether we're a teenager or a senior citizen, whether we're just beginning our journey of higher education and employment or receiving Social Security checks. That's how we have to think. Steadfast, immovable, always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. And then the other exhortation came in chapter 16, verse 13 to the Corinthians. He said, watch, steadfast in the faith. Be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. The Bible warns in the last days that many people will depart from the faith. Watch. Stand fast in the faith. Be brave. Be strong. Like how often do you really hear that in the New Testament? Watch. Be steadfast in the faith. Be brave. Be strong. And let all that you do be in love. That's a delicate balance, isn't it? Because we gotta we gotta be brave and we gotta be strong and we gotta keep on loving. 
It'd be easier if you just had to be brave and strong and not keep on loving, wouldn't it? That'd be a lot easier. Be brave, be strong, and don't, you don't have to worry about the loving part. Or as they say so often in war, kill them all and let God sort it out, right? That'd be a lot easier than be brave, be strong, and let all that you do be in love, done in love. But we're not a human army. We're an eternal kingdom. And we are called to forgive and pray for our enemies, which is a great testimony as to why we're not of this world, which is the final thing that Moses says. God's standard is our standards. God's standards is our action. So we hold the line no matter what. If you're the last woman standing in 2070, then having done all, stand. Do you know the legacy of the church that we've received from how many people have stood faithful in the face of death and given, now, having loved their lives and having given their lives? Do you know what the first people who did, Tyndale and those guys, the first printed Bibles, how they're hunted all over Europe, hunted down, their, their printing presses? The, the fear of what the torture would be for them in that Reformation era from powerful political forces? The Huguenots, these people, what they did, how they stood, the Morovians. We have such a great legacy as the church. And my generation is finishing our journey, and the next generation is beginning theirs. And your world looks very different than mine. I watch the commercials, and I go like, it is a completely different world than the one I knew growing up. I can't even believe what I see. Like, we need to watch, stand fast in the faith, have courage, and be brave. And I would say we live in a dark time, and we do. Maybe it's the darkest time ever, I don't know. I know other generations of believers lived in very dark times. I would not want to be so foolish to think that ours is the darkest time. I just know that ours is a dark time. But we're a special people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A peculiar people also in another spot. We're the bride of Jesus Christ, his church. And we're in covenant with him. Which brings us to the third and final thing is that God's standard, God's standards are our distinctions. It says, He will set you, verse 19, He will set you high above all nations which He has made in praise, in name, and honor. That praise, name, and honor was the nation of Israel, not the surrounding nations. He will set you high above all nations. For what purpose? Well, in praise and name and honor, but that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God, just as he has spoken. Not by coincidence, in that same book of 1 Peter, Peter says to be holy. Be holy as I am holy is what the Lord said in the Old Testament to Israel, and then it's reaffirmed to the church in the New Testament. Now, we think of holiness as something like some sort of pious outward religion that we can't relate to. 
I remember when I was 16 at the Catholic mission there in Oceanside, and I thought, I should serve the Lord. It'd be the right thing to serve God. And I remember specifically, definitively being at a Catholic mass at the Oceanside mission, watching the priest, watching the altar boys, and thinking, I can't do that. And in my mind, that was holiness. And that's not obtainable for me, and I can't do that. I was quite relieved eight years later when God showed me that and it wasn't necessarily holiness at all. That was religious liturgical services, how they feel led to do them. I look at it now. But that doesn't make anyone holy. Holiness is not some outward thing. It's an inward thing. God is holy and it reflects his, his purity of character without sin and shadow of turning. And as we're spending time with the Lord, this is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit that we become more like the Lord. And it's a transformation of character that God's just sort of flushing things out. And some of us need to flush out a little bit and some of us need to flush out a lot. Yeah, flush things out. And there's things God has to flush out in our lives. And depending on how long you live in the world and how much evil you thought and how much evil you did and no one wants to know about or care about anyways, you just need to give it to Jesus. You need to flush it out. And sometimes a whole lifetime of flushing things out. You can't live in this world without having all these things come against you. No matter how much you want to be set apart, you can't live in this world without being continually bombarded. And you think, who's bombarded the most? People who are trying to live for Jesus. People who are bright lights shining in a dark time. The devil's not looking to destroy your neighbor's life in that sense and keep him from being an effective witness if you're not walking for the Lord or with the Lord. The devil wants to destroy your life. He wants to destroy our joy. He wants to destroy our relationships. He wants to destroy our ministry. He wants to destroy our hope. That's what he wants to do. And his target is the church because everyone else walks according to under the sway of the wicked one, as it says in 1 John. He's taking the whole world captive to do his will, as it says in Timothy. We, the whole world walks according to the prince of the power of the air. But we don't, because in the sense it's free, it's free indeed. So we are the ambassadors, the citizens of an eternal kingdom that's high above all the nations of this realm. Because the kingdoms come and go. But in the book of Daniel, when God gave Daniel the vision in chapter 2 of kingdoms and mighty kingdoms, he gave him the five kingdoms, the four that came in the biblical timeline of Nebuchadnezzar, so on and so forth, the Medo-Persian. But the ten toes, that's revived Rome. And that's what we're looking at right now. We're looking at metal and clay that can't merge together, trying to bring together a new world order in the name of Babylon, like the original Babylon. Everyone agrees. Everyone gets in line and does exactly what the government says to do. We say, you do this, you do this. The government says, put your hands on your head, put your hands on your head. The government says, you can't say that, don't say that. That's what we're living in right now. But it doesn't quite work, does it? It's like the ten toes, clay and iron. They don't quite work, but that's there. God told us this is how it plays out. God told us in his word, this is the end game. But what is our nation? What is our kingdom? If we're a holy nation, which Peter says, what is ours? Ours is the great mountain of Daniel 2. That great mountain crushes the image. 
And that mountain is the kingdom of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is the coming kingdom. That's when we pray. We say, our Father in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done. And then we end with, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, because ours is not here. In fact, Peter went on to say in that passage of 1 Peter chapter 2 that I read about a holy nation, that we're to conduct ourselves as pilgrims and sojourners. This is not our home. And the more I see where it's going, it just makes it that much more for me. But this is where we are. And like an ambassador would be if you're a U.S. ambassador in Moscow in 1960, so are we here now. We have a job to do. We represent a kingdom. We're called to have this standard, live this standard, be this standard, and that's it. Because this standard is a distinction. Because there are holy people raised above the nations because they weren't like the nations. They're different. There's light, there's darkness, and we're different. We can't expect the world to walk in light as much as we want it to. This is not our home. And Jesus said there's a narrow gate that leads to life. And how many go in there? How many go through the narrow gate? Say it louder. How many go through the narrow gate? Few. Few. But the wide and broadest path leads to destruction. And how many go there? Say it again. Many. And Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. So we're in the narrow gate. We want good things for our family. We want good things for our community. We want good things for our civic leaders. We want good things for our country. We want good things for our states where we live. We want good things for the different nations around the world. We want good things for the body of Christ. But alas, men love darkness and don't come to the light. But we are the light. And we're distinct. As Israel was distinct, a holy people set apart. We're called to be distinct. A holy people set apart. And we're reminded of that in this text. In Thessalonians, talking in the context of the return of the Lord, we read this. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, speaking to the church contextually clearly, it says that, Concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you about the Lord's return. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then suddenly destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, drunk at night. But let us be those for the day, be sober. That's who we're meant to be. And then he said this in Second Thessalonians, shortly after that, that the lawless one will be revealed when the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy the brightness of his coming. But the coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the truth, the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie and that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. 
there's a great delusion upon this planet. And I can't tell you how many people I talk to you to say, how can people not discern what is going on right now on this planet globally? And I'll tell you, I'll come because Jesus said there would be a great delusion. Pastor Joey, do you believe right now that this is the greatest delusion on the human race that's ever happened? Yes, I do. You don't have to agree with me. We can agree to disagree on that. But there's no other way to explain the complete absence of critical thinking and mind-numbing obedience to insanity on this planet right now. I've never seen anything like it, even close to it. And it just keeps expanding in waves and layers. Yes, I believe there's a great delusion upon the human race right now that God's allowed that if it's not how that plays out, we just read the Bible, so let God be true and men a liar. That's the way it is going to play out. So you younger people, if you live to be 90, <laughs> if it seems like the delusion backed off in your timeline, good for you and for your grandkids. But at some point, the delusion, worse than the one we see right now, is going to happen because I just read it to you from the Word. And we are children of light, not of darkness. There is a distinction. God's standard is our distinction. Because we're elevated above the nations because ours is the kingdom. It's the mountain that crushes the kingdoms of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So we need to be reminded of that tonight. This text reminds us that Moses, to the people of covenant, passed on the stewardship of the oracles and the Messiah. And so too, even with the body of Christ, each generation passes on the oracles of God's word, and the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the gospel message. So as we partake of communion tonight, we rejoice in who we are, that someone passed it on to us, and we're passing it on to the next generation, and we're passing it on to those around us. And if people want to come to the light, great for them. If they reject the light, and you suffer for it, and I suffer for it, we suffer for it, that's just the way it is. I'm willing to die on that hill, and I hope you are too.